This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. And welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the 1st of July, ladies and gentlemen, meaning that we have been in some form of lockdown now for what, about 460 plus days. And it's certainly beginning to feel a bit like that, isn't it? Let's recap, shall we? The holiday plane is still in a holding pattern, stacking high above the airport. That's right, uh, you can't really go anywhere. Nearly 400,000 children are being forced to stay at home instead of being sent to school because of covid The NHS is paralysed by a virus that is causing plenty of positive tests, but very few deaths. England fans can't go to Rome to watch their beloved team try and qualify for the semi-finals of Euro 2020. And you still can't go shopping without wearing a bleeding mask. So, why oh why, despite various positive noises from the government, are we still trapped in limbo without any real guarantee that this will all come to an end? in precisely 18 days' time. I mean, we're hearing all around us now uh, that when they do lift the restrictions on July the 19th, as Sajid Javid, the new health secretary, has said they will, they probably won't lift the travel restrictions. They probably won't still allow anybody to come here from many countries in the world. They probably won't be able to lift every single restriction in the way that they said that they would. They're already making those noises. And we're already hearing about school problems. We're already hearing uh, about work-related problems, office occupancy problems. We're already hearing about the fact that you won't be able to go to America probably until next year. I mean, for God's sake. This morning we'll be asking Baroness Kate Hoey what she thinks of this continued cautious approach. And uh, we'll be asking her about a Belfast court decision yesterday uh, where they rejected a legal challenge formulated by uh, her good self and uh, as well uh, Ben Habib uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol, challenging uh, the way that Britain has kind of hung Northern Ireland out to dry since Brexit. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we're joined by Helen Dale, writer and author, uh, who's got plenty to say about what's happening in Australia, where there is considerable resistance to taking the vaccine and where despite their draconian lockdowns they're still fighting to kill off covid suggesting almost that the lockdowns don't work really how extraordinary plus you'll give us her take on the rather bizarre situation surrounding britney spears and her father's conservative status the court yesterday ruled uh, that britney spears cannot despite the fact that she's an independent woman uh, of complete and utter sound mind she can't look after her own affairs it's absolutely bizarre and we're also going to ask why positive and uh, why schools are continuing to send hordes of children home when just one pupil tests positive. We've got a story on the front page of the Daily Telegraph today uh, in which schools have been told that they've got to stop interpreting the rules, forcing whole years to self-isolate just because of one positive test. We'll also be exploring the reasons behind uh, the reasons why we're giving told there's going to be more booster jabs being punted in the autumn by ministers who are so-called keen to avoid another lockdown. Well, it's easy to avoid another lockdown, guys. Just don't do it. 0344 499 1000. There is a statue unveiling today. Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, um, is going to be unveiled uh, in Kensington Gardens, very close to the Diana Memorial, uh, because Harry and William are going to be there. Apparently, Harry was looking very grumpy yesterday because some photographers are taking his picture. Sorry, Harry. Uh, I'm afraid that's part of what happens to you when you want to be famous and make millions and millions of dollars uh, for just saying things. 
We've also got Georgie Frost with some money-saving tips. We've got some gardening tips coming up as well, uh, because if you've got one, it's almost bound to be looking a lot better than it did last year. And because it's Thursday, Helen and Nicholas is here with some lovely wine choices for us to try. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, the original and the best. It's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, head across to Ireland and talk to Baroness Hurry of Lyle Hill and Rathlin. Uh, she, of course, was in court yesterday talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol, trying to push through measures which would enable Northern Ireland and its people to be treated in exactly the same way uh, as people on the mainland of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Kate, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So, um, were you disappointed yesterday? Let's kick off with what happened uh, with the uh, with the lawsuit. What, what's the status of it? Well, we lost uh, in in the sense that the judge ruled against our our um, all this, all the you know things that we had said about it. But we actually there was one very important win, and that was that the judge did accept that the protocol had breached the Act of Union. Uh, he used the argument that that was still lawful because in Parliament had given what was called implied consent. In other words, Parliament knew when it was voting for the protocol that it was actually breaching um, the Act of Union, Article 6. Mm. Now, that was what we've been saying for some time and has been denied and was denied even by the Prime Minister himself just two weeks ago in Parliament when asked by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, had, had the protocol breached Article 6? He said, no, of course it hadn't. And the Act of Union was still, you know, more or less exactly the same. Yes. So that was very, very important because clearly we always knew that we were going to have a very tough this um, challenge in Northern Ireland, you know, for a Northern Ireland justice to kind of go overboard on everything that the government had said on this would have been a hugely controversial decision. And therefore, we knew always that we would be going on to the appeal court and it will ultimately end up in the Supreme Court. But I think the constitutional issue of the Act of Union has very much wider repercussions now than just Northern Ireland. And there'll be a lot of people reading that judgment and reading into it various aspects that will affect even Scotland. So it was very important for us. We also, I think, you know, gave a little bit of um, uh, more publicity to the fact that Northern Ireland is being affected by the protocol very, very badly. And of course, it came on the same day that the European Union actually kindly, you know, how nice of them. They yes. actually agreed that for another three months, we could uh, have sausages and other meat products coming from our own country to over to us here in yes. the same country. And, you know, that just and, and that was written up by so much of the media as this great EU, you know, how wonderful that the EU had done this. I think for most people in Northern Ireland, they just thought, isn't this absolutely outrageous that we have to get a foreign power to actually allow us to have our own sausages brought over yes. from England? And it's only temporary, of course, anyway, for three months. Yeah, well, exactly right. And also, I mean, without, with, with the greatest of respect to the European Union, without them having extended that particular situation, you wouldn't have had a problem necessarily anyway, would you? No, we, we wouldn't, of course. That that was exactly what, what happened, um, you know, that, that, that they wanted that to happen. And therefore, the, the, the extension was something that they could sort of look like they were giving some kind of, um, you know, freedom to us and that was how nice of them to do it. But it, it, is, it, is, it is not sustainable. It really isn't the way that it's working at the moment for mm. 
most businesses and for most people. But for me, it is the constitutional issue. And that was very, very interesting yesterday. Yeah. In the high, in is the there any really role in this for Dublin? Uh, because I was reading an interesting piece about uh, about the situation uh, in, in the Republic of Ireland now, because after Brexit, basically Ireland finds itself in a bit of a cleft stick because it can't now push its kind of globalist agenda because it's no longer the home of uh, sort of, you know, world headquarters of the European Union just off to the side of Britain. It's kind of been abandoned in its own way by the EU uh, and its economy is, is failing and faltering and it's relying more and more uh, on the US and the UK. Well, I think I think that's going to be the next uh, interesting aspect of the whole the whole situation, because, yes, they are no longer now um, a net um, receiver. Mm. They're also a net contributor. And they are seeing that, you know, while I think there's no doubt about it, the EU used and, and worked closely with them to punish us in the United Kingdom yeah. and, and to use Northern Ireland as a sort of weapon in that. Um, but now, once things get eventually settled, I think they will find that they are not as important as they thought they might be. Right. And of course, the whole question on, on tax and corporation tax will really, really affect them. So that's, that's, a, that's a coming in of interest and will be of great support to those people in the Republic who are mm. actually campaigning also to, um, to leave. Right. And so does that then harm the, uh, the wish for some uh, in, in the entire island of Ireland who want to see a united Ireland in some way or who want to push for that, uh, who want to push for some form of referendum? And also, will it, will it mean that the, the Irish government itself will begin to realise that the EU is doing this wrong and might actually yeah. try and make it make it work? Well, that's what you would think common sense would, would say. You would. That that would <laughs> but, but of course, that there isn't a lot of common sense in politics, is there sometimes? No. And, uh, I think I think what what we will probably see is that um, th there will be more and more pressure coming from from people uh, on on the extremes fringe of of uh, republicanism for a, a poll in uh, Northern Ireland. Yeah. But I think that's highly unlikely to happen. And of course, what people need to remember in in Great Britain is that just because people don't vote for the DUP or the Unionist Party. Um, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't, in a border poll, vote still to stay within the United Kingdom. Mm. So there's a, there's a great difference there. But I think you know I think what we're seeing is the Irish government, particularly Coveney, the foreign minister, really trying to interfere more and more, and that's very annoying to people who feel that he's got. There are certain aspects of the Belfast Agreement where the Irish Republic does have a right to have involvement, but he has been involving himself in practically everything, and that is beginning to irritate. And I think the new leader of the Unionist Party, and I think every time I come on to you, come on, there's been a new leader of the DUP, but <laughs> just Jeffrey Donaldson formally took a seat uh, became leader today officially and he's made a speech this morning where he has talked very strongly about what the British government has to do, mm. you know, our government has to do in order to bring stability to Northern Ireland and in order to, uh, you know, prove really that they realise now the effects of the protocol is having right across the whole of Northern Ireland, whether you're from a nationalist or a unionist background. No, exactly right. Stay with us, Baroness Howie, because we're going to talk about the state of uh, the union as well right now. We're going to talk about the state of, uh, of Scotland because I think football, funnily enough, uh, has done something uh, to the wishes of those who would like to see um, the union split up. We're talking to Kate Howie. Uh, we'll be back very shortly with her. This is Talk Radio across the UK. Online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graves. 
on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Kate Hurry, Baroness Hurry, that is. Uh, let me ask you, Kate, about the state of things. I worked out this morning that we're something like 464 days in since the lockdown began. You still can't really go anywhere. Uh, you still can't go into a shop without wearing a mask. There's an awful lot of stuff you still cannot do, uh, although things have eased a little bit. Um, what is all this caution all still about, do you think? Well, I'm I'm beginning to feel very angry now about yeah. the whole thing and more and more people are and that's why we're seeing more and more people just doing what they think is right and sensible because I think the final straw to me was when uh, you know the G7 came and they all sat round tables inside without mm. masks and yet you know even in the House of Lords we have to sit and wear a mask through a big long debate right. all of the nonsense and the UEFA people coming in you know the, the huge um, numbers of supporters were saying at Wimbledon and at, 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 at football and for, for, you know the vast majority of people who are not able to go to those great events mm. Their attitude is, we've been vaccinated, doubly vaccinated. Why are we now being restricted in this way that you still can't even have who you want to have mm. in your home? So I'm quite clear now that, you know, that July the 19th is, is actually even too late. I would I would bring it forward and say more or less from instantly that people should be able to behave now in a way that is recognising yes. that there's still a risk. But the risk is so much less for the people who have been double vaccinated and for young people. And the, in, this variant doesn't seem to actually be causing anything other than what, what certainly someone I know who's had it said it was just like having a really mm. bad kind of cold type right. flu. Well, certainly. And and there are those scientists who say also the signs that we are currently seeing, i.e. lots of infections, but not very many illnesses, is actually a good thing because it shows that, the one, the vaccine is working, and two, the virus is weaker than it used to be. So therefore, we are in a much better place than we were uh, this time last year or in January uh, or in December. You know, there's no reason really uh, to keep all this stuff going. And the government, and I know that you're like me, hesitant about criticising the government too much and criticising Boris too much. But all they now do is talk about how great the vaccine rollout is, but but they're not doing anything with it. And, you know, they have the opportunity now with a new health secretary to come in. And yes, he's made the right noises about wanting to end lockdown as soon as possible. But really, this is the opportunity for him to actually come in and, and not seem that every word of whatever these sage advisors and medical people behind him are saying that he has to go along with it. I think he's got to you know, show, show some leadership and the Prime Minister has to show some leadership too that we just can't go on like this. And pe- the problem now is that I think people are just not believing no. what they're hearing. And, and that's not good for, you know, generally for the country if the people are starting disbelieving no. practically well, the public mood has completely switched as far as I can see. Yes, there are still some of those people who say it's still unsafe and I'm not going out and I don't want to yes, go back to the office. To. But, you know, that's fine. Let them believe that. But they're no longer running uh, the public policy of this country. and They shouldn't be. No, and, and, and people, you know, I have great respect for people who, you know, I've got some friends who are very, very wary of it still and, you know, worried about doing things. Well, that's that's fine. Let them do that. Don't let them go onto the tube or onto buses. But really, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be something that um, means that we all are held back because of, of, of a small number of people once no. we've been vaccinated. Well, exactly. And watching the football, as we all did, um, oh. <laughs> watching England and England fans up and down the country jumping up and down. I mean, it was great to see. And here's the thing that, that I've been saying, you know, Boris can be a very fortunate man at times. But if England actually go uh, to Rome next uh, Saturday and win, they got maybe Denmark in the semi-finals. they could get to the fact they could actually win. I think if England win the Euros, 
that changes everything as well in a way because people will be very much happier uh, they've got something to cling on to i think it also douses the kind of calls for independence in scotland because their football team uh, were not very <laughs> successful and similarly with wales and obviously ireland's a slightly different ball game but i mean you've been um, minister for sport you've been very much involved in sport sport is a very interesting dynamic i think in this situation Oh, I think I think we we never can uh, overestimate the the power that a successful team, whether it's the British team at the Olympics or any of the individual home countries doing mm. well, does to the morale. And you know, I mean, I know it's a bit bit sort of naughty, but it was wonderful to beat to beat Germany. Of and course. It was one- Wonderful to see a couple of other of the big EU countries, you know. And actually, someone tweeted it. Just shows the sort of ignorance there is. Someone tweeted, "Well, why, you know, why are we even in it when we're not in the EU?" They had sort of no understanding. No. But I, no, it was wonderful, and I do really hope that um, England England can win it. I don't have any of this feeling of not wanting to support them because I'm obviously a strong Northern Ireland supporter, and we were very unlucky. We didn't mm. we didn't qualify this time. We did last time, um, and it means such a lot to people. And so I'm very very happy to see England win, and I think it will absolutely make. Uh, the Prime Minister's position much, much stronger. I hope it makes him so strong that he feels he can instantly, you know, get rid of the lockdown and get rid of the protocol together. Well, this is it. And I wonder whether if England were to get to the final of the Euros at Wembley, there'll be huge pressure, I would have thought, to just fill the stadium, won't they? Oh, yes. I mean, I don't think that having the final there, I mean, they, they did have to do all sorts of manoeuvring to get the final. And, mm. and that's why they you know, allowed the UEFA officials in. It was all very, very deliberate uh, in order to keep the final at Wembley. But to have England in the final at Wembley would be taking us all back to sort of 1966, yeah. wouldn't it? So it would be wonderful. Well, it no, really that's- would. That's a really good morale boost for everyone. Sport is, um, you know, I know a lot of people aren't particularly interested in sport, but it's interesting when it comes to something like this, how many people who don't even like football will have watched that match. Yes. Oh, totally. And Euro 96 showed that, didn't it? When people were just standing in the, in the streets, in the open air, watching these huge screens. And that will happen, I believe, on Saturday. We've already got some publicans uh, and some hospitality uh, organisers and events organisers saying, can we please have normal capacity for Saturday? Because they need to make some money. And why the hell not? And in fact, I went one step further yesterday. I was saying, why can Boris not negotiate something with the Italian authorities or with the EU so that British English fans can go to Rome and see the game uh, in the bubble if, if necessary and then come back? Yeah, so I mean, if, if, if all those UEFA people can fly in and yeah. all the seven people can fly in, why can our fans not fly into Italy under the same kind of, using the same kind mm. of precaution? And it's, it's, it is such a, such a shame. And I think a lot of them will find their own way there, whatever happens. Well, that's so, what I think. Britain <laughs> finding their way around borders and boundaries and, and rules, which uh, I'm sure we'll see a lot there anyway. Yeah, absolutely right. Great to talk to you as ever, Kate. Thanks very much indeed. Baroness Hoey, uh, they're making perfect sense, as she always does. The big story today and this week will be the football because the game on Saturday is massive. Uh, it's a game against Ukraine. You'll hear it right here, of course, on TalkSport. Uh, many, many people will be out watching it. There have been pubs that are saying we should be able to fill our pubs to capacity on Saturday because that is what the people want. That is what the uh, data would suggest we should do. I mean, some people, of course, like The Guardian this morning, groaning and moaning on uh, about mass events and 1,300 people travelling fans from Scotland getting COVID. Well, what does it mean? It means nothing. What it means is that 1,300 fans from Scotland, amongst about twenty to 25,000 fans who came to London, uh, have tested positive. That's what it means. 
It doesn't mean they've got COVID. I don't know why they write these headlines as if 1,300 people are going to drop dead in the streets of Glasgow. It's quite shocking behaviour. It's quite wrong. And they should not do it. It's actually irresponsible journalism. Do you know, I've got a good mind to tear it up. Maybe later. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now to Liz Cole, co-founder of Us For Them, a campaigning group who have done some great work uh, around the issue of children in schools. We now know, for example, that there's something ridiculous like nearly 400,000 children off school because schools are sending people home in their droves. Hundreds of kids going home from in individual schools because one child has tested positive for COVID. It's absolutely mad. Liz, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, uh, I see from the front page of the Telegraph today that the government's now starting to get a bit concerned about the operations uh, that the schools are running themselves, kind of interpreting the rules as they see fit uh, and sending home sort of entire classrooms, despite the fact that there's no need for that. Yeah, I think there's two things here. I mean, we've certainly seen an increase in the number of contacts being sent home per confirmed case. Mm. So it's almost quadrupled in the last two weeks, I believe, from about five contacts per confirmed case to 20. Right. Um, I'm not sure of what the you know, reasoning is behind that. Um, it may be um, you know, additional caution um, from schools, but I really think... The key issue here is this is a policy from the government. It's the government's policy um, to isolate children for 10 days at a time. Um, it's been um, illustrated today in the by Nick Triggle in the BBC that actually they never collected data, as we knew from November, mm. never collected data on how many kids in those isolation bubbles ever went on to test positive. So we've got no data as to whether this policy was ever effective. Um, and so in my view, it's the government that needs to address this policy. Um, it, they need to issue clear instructions um, and, and this needs to stop. It's mayhem, absolute mm. mayhem. Um, and it's encouraging to hear talk of maybe this being scrapped in, um, you know, in July. Yeah. But we should be acting now. This is a matter of urgency. Children can't miss another day of school um, they need they need to be prioritised now. They need to go back to normal, um, and we need to put children first. Um, and I'll, it's actions, not words, are going to count yeah, now. Absolutely um, right, because there's no question and no doubt in my mind. Because you can see from some some of the messages I'm getting from some social media, from tweets and and stuff, a lot of parents telling me that their kid was sent home. Uh, they've had to take time off work, which they can't afford to do because they don't make any money when that happens. Other kids who have got siblings in the same house still going to school where one of them is being told to self-isolate, sometimes sharing the same room. I mean, it's a kind of collective madness going on here, isn't it? It's absolute madness. And, you know, again, we go back to, is it effective? And as you say, there's loads of anomalies in this policy and the fact that the data's never been collected mm. on effectiveness. Is it effective? Limited, I would say. Right. Is it harmful? Yes, it is harmful. Very, very harmful. You know, we're hearing stories of children weeping, sobbing in their mother's arms mm. because they had to miss once again, you know, miss the end of term activities, can't even leave the house for 10 days, um, you know, missing all of their uh, schooling, but also any social interaction. Some children, Mike, have been isolated for five times. Mm. So 10 weeks, um, basically unable to even leave the house, um, according to the rules. 
And this is considered to be acceptable way to treat children who are supposed to be the most vulnerable members of our society. And yet we're sitting here now without actually thinking, well, this isn't a matter of urgency, right. but it is a matter of urgency. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you guys have been doing some great work. And I know Molly wrote a good piece in the, in the mail yesterday. But I mean, we found yeah. out yesterday that there were some children um, who haven't been back to school since last September when the new year started. And basically we're now, what, probably three weeks away from the end of the summer term. And they will have gone a whole year without going to school for a day. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And the, you know, the frustrating thing about this is that it could have, it was predictable, wasn't yeah. it? It was, it was predictable. Um, and, you know, every point that we could have actually decided, let's put children first now, once we've um, you know, protected all vulnerable adults, let's put them first now. But it, we're still at a point where we're still having to, you know, um, argue about this. And I do feel quite angry about this today because, you know, here we are, um, 15 months that children have been living under these restrictions with these catastrophic consequences um, to their mental health, their schooling and their physical health. Um, and yet here we, we still don't seem to actually just be able to take simple actions and say, let's put children's lives back to normal. That's not an outrageous thing to say, but it almost seems that, you know, that's something that it, it's difficult to say, but it shouldn't be difficult to say. And I'm happy to say it. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid to say it. I think children should be going back to normal, normal. Yes, um, absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm slightly encouraged when I see... Um, um, pieces in the papers about how masks are going to be done away with come July the 19th. But what I'm concerned about, Liz, and I'm quite um, sure about this, is that there will be some schools and some head teachers who will say, I'm sure of it, oh, I think we'll just keep the masks, we'll just keep that precaution, because some schools, despite government policy and government advice, have gone back to make, making kids wear them in the classroom. Yeah, and I think that's this is the problem, as we always said, once this was brought in, it's very difficult to put the toothpaste back in the tube, as the government is now finding. Getting it out is easy, mm. putting it back in is not. Um, and that's why I think what really needs to happen is extremely clear, unequivocal direction, where we would say, you will not have children wearing masks in classrooms, um, rather than um, leaving it you know, in this sort of ambiguous situation we need much stronger messaging a much more a stronger back to normal messaging because it's normality that children need normality certainty and security um not this ambiguity mm. um and they need to feel now that they are being prioritized their education does matter their mental health matters um and their well-being matters to us as a society we've put them at the bottom of the heap for far too long now it is absolutely um, extraordinary that we've allowed this to happen. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of teenagers uh, I can see are just kind of a little bit lost at the moment. They're looking around going, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm working towards because whenever I do take an exam, it might be that they, they ignore whatever I actually do and just give me a grade which they think I should get anyway. They don't know whether they can go to college. They don't know whether they want to go to university. They just, they're very, very confused, I think. Exactly. It's it's the ambiguity, it's the uncertainty, because we know that, you know, looking back, you know, to, to, to being a young person, you know, you want to be able to plan, you make plans, yeah. you look forward, you work towards those plans, and keeping on track to those is incredibly important for a teenager. But what we've now done is we've pulled the rug from under their feet, there's no certainty, mm. we don't know what's happening, we don't know, as you say, whether you can go to college or not. 
Um, and even as a parent, what I found really hard about this all along is not being able to give my own children that certainty. Yes. So even my own kids saying, I'm really looking forward to activities week, mum, looking right. forward to picking this option or that option. And I can't, in all honesty, say, great, look forward to that, because as far as I know, that might be all pulled away right. if you get pinged as a contact. So, you know, it's 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 not going to be good for young people in the long run, is mm. it, if they it can't really make isn't. plans? And you can't even tell them that, don't worry, you know, come August, we're all going off to Spain for a couple of weeks and it'll be nice. And you can't even tell them that because you can't, don't know if you can go. No, you can't. You can't tell them. And we can't we can't keep robbing young people of their aspirations and their dreams Mm. and their hopes. And that's that's basically what we're doing. This this these policies aren't abstract. They're real. They really affect people's lives. Um, And I think that the government really needs to recognise that. Um, I think people are becoming extremely angry and frustrated for yeah. their kids. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I'm hearing from um, um, somebody who just texted in, uh, Olivia, that Robertsbridge School has now been closed in its entirety uh, in Sussex until the 12th of July. I mean, the whole school. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. I mean, we, we cannot have school closures. We cannot go back to school closures. But this is exactly what's happening. It's school closures by stealth. And we're making schooling and education disposable. It's an added extra. Mm. It's, it's a, it should be a, a constant in children's lives. It's where you know, children are, are safe in school. It's where, you know, it's the, it's the centre of their, of, of their educational lives. And we can't, we can't make it a discretionary thing. No, we really can't. Well, Liz, keep up the good fight. We should join you in it whenever we can. Uh, Liz Cole, their co-founder of Us For Them, uh, trying to get some sense out of the school systems in this country, but also arguing that the government needs to make it far clearer what schools should be doing. Because if schools are interpreting uh, rules for themselves and getting it wrong, then they need to be told they're getting it wrong and they need to start doing it right, don't they? 5 years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good day uh, to Ms. Helen Dale. Helen, how the hell are you? I'm not too bad. It was sunny earlier, but the sun's now disappeared momentarily. Oh, so. well. no, no, no doubt. Uh, we will see some form of a summer at some point or other. We had a couple of uh, days in June, but uh, sadly, May was pretty bad. Of course, Wimbledon week is on, so it normally rains anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's like they, they, they offend the tennis gods or something. Yes. So the heavens open. Yes. Yes, exactly right. Now, tell me, I know that. Uh, it's it, it's not the obvious thing to do to come and talk to you because you happen to be Australian, but you obviously know more about Australia than we do. What's going on? And why have they only vaccinated 7% of their population? Because quite a lot of well, vaccine hesitancy, I think. Yeah, there are a number of issues going on at the moment. Um, initially, Australia's vaccine rollout was delayed by two months because of export controls imposed by the European Union. So they were put behind. Uh, and that nice was widely reported over here so they were put behind from the get-go then you've got the situation where once again this started in the european union but it's gone everywhere else mm. as well where whereby the astrazeneca vaccine has been um undermined basically and that started in the eu over these rare blood clots and yes, doctors and nurses have been pointing out that it's less of a risk to you, much less of a risk in terms of blood clots than, say, taking the oral contraceptive or certain kinds of medications for erectile dysfunction, mm. which can also produce either blood clots or blowing a, just basically blowing a fuse. Yeah. I won't right. go any further there. Uh, then you've got the situation where if you directly compare, and this is a problem a lot of people don't understand, absolute and relative risk, for someone who's under 30, I think the figure is, the risk, if you only compare the vaccine to COVID and to nothing else, so you exclude any side thinking about, say, the oral contraceptive or Viagra, mm. uh, you then have a situation where it is actually of more risk to take to have the AstraZeneca vaccine than it is to um, just catch COVID because right. young pe people under 30, if anything, they get a stiffle, but huge numbers of people get nothing at yeah. all. And I've got a personal friend up in Scotland who got it, who sh showed the antibodies and, and then did a blood test right. to confirm it. And he has no idea when he had COVID. And, he was one of those asymptomatic people. Yeah, but also, Helen, this is not just something that's being said uh, on, you know, Facebook or not something that's being said in various kind of social media communities. This is the sort of thing that's being said and has been said in Europe as well by senior health officials in France, well, in Germany um, and now in and Australia. And the state, the state in Australia is my uh, that's responsible for this. And they get and both the premier, who I went to university with, mm. I remember her from her student union days and the chief medical officer of the 
state of Queensland are in a lot of strife at the moment and are being accused by the other chief medical officers and state premiers, and I understand also the Prime Minister, for promoting an anti-vax message because the Prime Minister, Australia's got plenty of vaccines now. That, that supply problem has finally been dealt with, um, but it did take a very long time because Australia had to source them mm. from elsewhere, vaccinate New Guinea because they the, the, some of the initial stocks from the EU were meant to be for PNG as well. Yeah. That's the other issue that people aren't aware of, and yeah. also some of New Zealand. Um, so what has happened now is that the chief medical officer in Queensland came out and just made a blanket statement that nobody under 40 should get the AstraZeneca vaccine mm. after the federal government, this, this is the Commonwealth, remember, federal system, so it's like the yeah. US, you're going to get differences from state to state, right. um, had said anyone who wants the AstraZeneca vaccine can go to their GP and get it, but they should have a chat with their GP mm. first. So it was left up to the individual. Right. And it was an attempt by the Morrison government to be a little bit less authoritarian because Australia is such an authoritarian country. Yeah. And so what has happened now is that all the other state premiers and the national government have turned on Queensland and said, thanks for promoting anti-vax. Because one of the effects, and I've discussed this previously on the Independent Republic, with authoritarianism in any area, whether it's, you know, vaping or, or cannabis or, mm. and, or, or vaccinations, is if you constantly step on people to get what you want, the, the government in this case, or it can be a large institution, a large company, then you finish up with people going, what are you hiding? Yeah. And that's how the conspiracy theory well, that's the trouble. starts. I mean, it, fe it feeds into all of that because, I mean, mm. the thing that I, I was shocked to hear this morning on, a, on an interview with somebody from Independent Sage, and this was on the subject of whether or not children should be vaccinated, the Independent Sage argument is, well, it's a question of whether you wish to operate on behalf of the population or you wish to operate on behalf of your family basically saying to parents, well, you're really not a very good person if you don't get your child vaccinated. And that, to me, is not only morally wrong, it's ethically um, inept and it's and it's it's just ridiculous. It also doesn't work. It increases vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah, where you see these anti-vax arguments circulating, particularly as we've, we now know that uh, this is not the issue in Australia, the people who tend not to get vaccinated in Australia aren't the religious or the poor. It's a different issue. It's an upper middle class phenomenon. The hippies right. who live in Byron Bay, I mean, there was a, some quite alarming reports a few years ago that some of the most under-vaccinated people were not where you expected, like remote Aboriginal communities. Aborigines are pretty good at making sure they rock up and mm. all their kids get their vaccines. Right. Um, it was actually amongst upper middle class people who really do have quite a lot of money, and they were they were. It was tied with environmentalism and ecology, and yes. but the, the the cod side of ecology. Well, they didn't, like, well talking, they didn't like the chemicals or something. Yeah. Oh, you would get all these extraordinary stories about mercury being in vaccines, yeah. and uh, all that it was, you know, coming from alien fetuses and they were really quite insane so mm. anti-vax in australia doesn't have religious roots mm. like it does in parts of the united states and like it does here yes. but of course um, the other problem here helen is is and it sounds as though it's happening in australia as well an awful lot of people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine 
are hesitant because they don't know absolutely whether it's going to be safe for them. And it's got nothing to do with them being anti-vax. It's got everything to do with them just being concerned for their own health. And particularly if... And also, too, you've got these confusing messages. You've got a a reasonably well-credentialed, you know, medic in Queensland saying one thing, and then you've got other equally well-credentials in other states saying another thing. Then you've got a quango, a targi, giving advice, and then you've got the government, the Mm. federal government, putting its own spin on this. On On all of it. Now, I'm going to make one observation here. A lot of people recommend federalism as a government system. Mm. I've seen it being touted as a solution to the problem of of the endless campaigns for Scottish independence. I'd like to add a note of caution on this as someone, I can do that as a, a person who grew up in a federal system, but also grew up in a particular state. I grew up in Queensland, which has always been very authoritarian. It's Mm. always had this weakness. I mean, it was very, very bad when I was in high school. the, the, The running joke was if you got three Queenslanders together, they'd be arrested because... But basically, public protest was illegal. It was right. like a developing country. Yeah. But federalism requires very high state capacity. If you want to look at badly run federalism, look at the United States. Yeah. If you want to look at well run federalism, look at Australia. And even in Australia, it's struggling. Yes. to get the vaccines to roll to be well, rolled I mean, out another, effectively another, across the, the country. Yeah, I would say another bad example of it is the European Union, because although it's not technically a federal system, it kind of is, and the EU would love it to be a federal system. A federal system, the, and you where saw... The, where you see uh, Angela Merkel this week trying to uh, sort of put pressure on all the European countries in the EU not to accept Britain's coming on holiday there. And the other thing is the enormous mess of the European Union vaccine rollout, which is an ongoing mess, it's still, they've still got problems, uh, has its roots in the misapplication of federalism. Those European countries with good healthcare systems, particularly Germany, were doing very, very well mm. until they decided to hand the vaccine rollout bump it upstairs. This is a very common thing. Britain used to do this when we were a member of the EU as well. And then when it went wrong, blame the EU body for doing it rather than attempting for stuffing it up rather than attempting to do it themselves. But yet federalism is really, really hard to do well. And confronted with a pandemic, even probably the best run federal system in the world, which is Australia's, Mm. is really, really struggling. And in the context, if you disaggregate the four home nations, you can see the one that is struggling now with its vaccine rollout relative to the rest of rest of the UK mm. is Scotland, yeah. because Scotland has taken the most into its own hands, whereas Wales and Northern Ireland and England have tended to act in concert mm. with the vaccine rollout. Right. Uh, so but what about the, thing, the, look- other, the other question I was asking earlier on is if lockdown has been in uh, place pretty much for, for an awful lot of the time that Australia has been under these uh, uh, sort of situations and, and since the first uh, outbreak, really, you know, why is it that it still has COVID? You know, because people have not been arriving into Australia in mass numbers. Hardly anyone's visiting there. Uh, people might be moving around inside the country. But if they've got rid of it, how come it's still there? 
Well, Australia hasn't had, apart from the state of Victoria, which had quite a lot because it really did have problems with its quarantine, uh, Australia's actually had very few lockdowns. Mm. What they did was they worked on the principle of close the borders but let the economy in the country continue to function normally. Right. What they found with this Indian variant or Delta variant, as they're insisting on calling it, but I think the geographical location is as good as any. We all know where Kent and India are. Stop right. it. Um is that it's much more transmissible and certainly the New South Wales outbreak, it emerged as a result of a driver from one of the airports, I think Kingsford Smith in Sydney, who was mm. being used to ferry travel crew, international air crew, right. from the domestic to the international terminals and he wasn't vaccinated and at no point did he wear a mask and he got this highly transmissible variant, supposedly 60% more mm. transmissible, and became a super spreader. Uh -huh. So that was a, absolutely, that's one thing Australia's very good at is, is the uh, test and trace. So they've established patient zero with, with that, and that's how it started. But the problem is now they thought that, uh, Australia thought that it's a very effective quarantine, hadn't been breached. So the, the entire rest of the country, even Victoria by this stage, had been completely unlocked. The economy was operating normally, steaming out of the recession, recession very quickly, mm. as Australia always does. It's got a very robust economy. And they didn't realise that the super spreader was basically running around New South Wales, giving the most transmissible variant to everybody he came in contact mm. with. Right. But then, of course, the question so, once again becomes, but that's OK. It, that will happen. It's almost impossible to stop that from happening here and there. Um, the question is, how deadly is it? And if it's not deadly, then just get on with it, surely. Well, the, and once again, we don't know. My, I, I looked on the... the I, the Australian's website, that's the, the newspaper that I yeah. write for in, in Australia. And they've got rolling I've had things coronavirus. published in the Australian, I'll have you know, Ms Dale. Ha Sorry? I said, I've had things published in the Australian. Have you really? I yes, have. I know. They used to nick the stuff I did for the Sunday Times and not pay me. Yes. <laughs> oh, they're supposed to pay you a repro, you know. Yeah, no, no, or they at paid, least uh, pay your paper. They, paid they probably the paper, paid yeah. the paper, yes, didn't pay you. Did. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, but the Australians got a rolling update, and I, I had a look at it this morning. And uh, my understanding based on that, although, of course, I've been sitting here for 15 minutes yeah. talking to you and also looking at the Britney Spears story, and I I don't think anyone in Australia has died of the Indian or Delta no. variant. No. You know, basically, I'm, I'm not even sure if, if anyone's been hospitalised, but is, I think which there is are a couple. Which is interesting because they haven't, because their vaccination rate is so low, you would have expected some of that to happen, but I don't think it is. Stay with us, though, for a second because we're just going to stop for a moment. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're talking to Helen Dale, writer, lawyer, political commentator. Helen, this Britney Spears story is baffling to me, I have to say. I can't understand, and I know there, uh, there are legal sort of niceties about these kinds of things and how they're filed and when they're filed. But the idea that a 39-year-old woman uh, who is of sound mind and is perfectly capable of looking after herself is somehow trapped in an agreement that she signed in 2008 with her own father seems baffling to me. I just can't understand why she can't get out of it. Well, yes, I 
read the headline this morning that uh, the court has ruled that she has to make a formal application to court. She hasn't done that. She's given some testimony, but apparently this is a procedural thing. She's not made a formal application to court uh, in order to have what in America appears to be called a conservatorship lifted. Yeah. Uh, for British listeners, it's probably better to explain it in terms of the phrase guardianship. Yeah. If you get letters from your your school, your kid's school, very often you'll find parent or guardian and you have to strike out. Most people obviously strike out guardian because yeah. they're, they're, they're the biological or adoptive or um, foster parents uh, of the child. They're not the guardian. But guardianship is a very old legal uh, regime and it exists in a number of different contexts mm. uh, you may for example have heard of a lasting power of attorney yeah now and that used to be called an enduring power of attorney historically a lot an enduring power of attorney was what you had to do when when Gran lost her marbles and couldn't manage yes. her affairs anymore. Yes normally and you now, would expect it to be in the work in the case of someone who can't look after themselves. Yes, and the the modern lasting power of attorney, like Britney Spears's conservatorship, so you can see these laws have common roots. Uh, it's divided into finance and health, mm. a modern lasting power of attorney, and it's clear with the, the the original Britney Spears arrangement was like that, and in other areas too, and this can can sometimes happen to a younger person. And in fact, it's something I saw when I was in practice was uh, what's known as a spendthrift trust, mm. which is particularly where uh, often it used to happen historically where a woman inherited a large estate, but it wasn't all for her. Um, some of it had to go to the children of the relationship. And what would happen was that the family, the man's family, typically would impose what was known as a spendthrift trust over her mm. if it became clear that she was just buying diamond jewellery and fast cars or, 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 or whatever so to go over the top of her and manage her finances. So this is a relatively common historical phenomenon. It seems to have been applied in Britney Spears's case because she was at some point not, in, not of sound mind. However, it's interesting, and I've read into a little bit of the detail of mm. it. One, the full document isn't available. So we've got the problem of like the free trade agreement with the UK and Australia of commenting on things we don't really know about. Yeah. And two, her father no longer looks after the personal or health side. Remember those two limbs. There are finance and personal yes. and health. Someone else does looks after the. Although personal she's and saying health that part. he still he still retains some control over some of her personal business. Not and just this will financial. have to and she will have to make an application to court, and this will have to be ventilated at trial mm. because he insists he's not. Not there and hasn't been since the end of 2019 and there's the court records to that effect uh, one thing the court has approved is having her finances under the control not just of him but also of a proper an organization called the Bessemer Trust mm. which they do things like manage people who have spendthrift trust problems they are a proper wealth management firm and that's what you're supposed to do when you've got someone who runs through money like water, basically, mm. then you have something like a wealth management firm to help them constrain their spending and manage their finances. Yes. But, my, um, but my point about it, Helen, is that, you know, it may well be that she required that sort of uh, overseeing when she went back in 2008. But I've, I've never come across a, a, a contract that you couldn't get out of.
effectively that if you even agreed at the time to sign it surely now now that you say well listen I, I, I accept that I should have signed it and it was fine for a while but now I want out of it surely she would normally be allowed to pay her way out of it buy her way out of it well that's this is the thing a conservatorship or guardianship it can look contractual but it's not quite the same as mm. the law of contract I mean it, it borrows from other elements it borrows from family law it borrows from um uh, uh, the um, the law of trusts, you know, areas where you don't always have the same rules as with the rule of contract. Mm. You're seeing this in the Bill Cosby case. Yeah. It's the same thing. Bill Cosby gave up his right to silence, the take the fifth, plead the fifth, um, on and therefore provided evidence that allowed a significant civil claim to be brought against him. And he did so on the on the under understanding that the, this him giving up his right to silence and providing evidence would not be used against him in a criminal suit. Right. And the court has naturally interpreted that like like a contractual agreement and said that the the prosecution in this case couldn't bring the case they they were stopped that's the technical term they were stopped from doing so precisely because he'd given up his right to right. silence which is a constitutional right in the united states mm. so contract has this sort of very odd relationship with a lot of these other things and i will say that one thing i do find alarming about the britney spears case and i do want to see how this has come about is she alleges that she has been deprived of the capacity to to conceive a child yeah now, that might be just something peculiar and odd about American law. As I always say, I am a lawyer, but I am not an American lawyer. Yeah. But that does strike me as really quite alarming. Yes, I think that's and absolutely right. If it emerged in Britain, if I and I have never seen a case like this ever in the United Kingdom. Maybe they exist, but I never saw one. Mind you, I wasn't a family practitioner. I did a little bit of family work in Scotland, but the Scottish system mm. is very different. Um that strikes me as very odd and very alarming yes. and it too has really quite unpleasant historical roots yes uh, oh, it absolutely in... does listen we're going to leave it there helen because we're running late but thank you for that very insightful uh, compensation uh, for my inability to figure out what is going on with the britney spears case because it seems very odd to me indeed the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Let's talk to Mark Lane, uh, who's a gardening expert, writer and broadcaster, BBC Gardener's World, because if you have got a garden, there's a pretty good chance that you've spent a lot more time in it in the past year than you've ever spent in it. Some people have said that they've uh, improved their gardens. Other people have said uh, they're just sick of looking at them and they'd like to go on holiday. Mark, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Very well indeed. I think it's probably good. right to say that, that people have spent more time at home uh, in the last, uh, I'm going to be exact here, 464 days since the first lockdown was announced. Um, it's been quite a remarkable time, hasn't it? It has. And, you know, from a gardening point of view, I think, you know, a lot of us have been probably sitting back, probably a little bit bored and looking outside the window or the, or the French doors or whatever, or back door and sort of thinking, crikey, I need to do something with my garden. And um, some wonderful research from qvcuk.com has actually wanted to show that relationship that Brits have with their garden that mm. also uncover some of those common gardening mistakes. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating in the fact that 40% of people are going to spend more time outside entertaining this summer 
purely because of travel restrictions. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think from my point of view as a gardener, obviously I love my plants and I love my garden, knowing that there are more and more people who have got back into it or are continuing with it, I think is just absolutely brilliant for the yeah. horticultural industry. Well, I mean, apart from anything else, one of the only places you could actually go for huge swathes of time was the garden centre. So presumably a lot of people were going, well, let's just go for a walk around the garden centre. We're just buying stuff because there wasn't really anything else they could do. Yeah, exactly. But also, you know, remember also, it doesn't matter how big your garden is or how small your garden is, or if you've got no outdoor space, mm. you can still have a plant inside. And there's, there's a wonderful thing called biophilia, and that's basically our innate need to be surrounded by nature and right. wildlife. And that's why gardening is so important for us, because it's both physically and mentally, it, you know, it helps our well-being. Yes. And, you know, getting your bare hands into soil actually releases serotonin in the brain. Yes. Which is obviously the good feel good, feel good feeling. It's a great thing for, for kids to get involved in as well. I mean, mine have sort of uh, discovered planting herb gardens and stuff like that because they quite like yeah. the idea of going outside, picking something off a bush and putting it in the uh, in the pot, you know. Absolutely. You know, it's straight from garden fork to your table fork. And there's yeah. nothing better because it's still got all the nutrients, all the sugars and everything that that plant should have, rather than sort of being lost a bit in transit and obviously in supermarkets and cold storage. Um, and actually, again, also the research showed that 17% of people said it was really rewarding serving up a meal, you know, with produce that mm. they had grown themselves. And there really is nothing better. There really is. I mean, I can I can attest to that because even as long ago as when I was at university, I had a few friends who back in those days who decided to go vegan and we decided to grow a lot of stuff. We grew tomatoes, uh, we grew green beans, we grew strawberries. We had a pear tree in the garden as well at the time. We were living in Bath. I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, we did get a bit sick of the green beans because they produced an awful lot of green beans. And we were sort yeah. of eating them every day for about six months. But I mean, it does taste an awful lot better, I must say. It does. And I think, you know, that one tip for that when people are sort of starting to grow vegetables is, you know, sometimes in a seed packet, you might get half a dozen seeds or you might get 100 mm. seeds. Don't, you know, sow all of them, because remember, you know, one will turn into a plant right. and from that plant, you can get multiple sort of vegetables or fruit. So just be mindful of that. So you don't, you know, you're not sort of wasting a yes. whole load of, of produce that you're going to be growing. Right. And is, is it a bit hit and miss then? Because, again, you know, we've tried various different things, you know, chili plants here and there. Sometimes they take, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't really produce any any fruit, if you like, though, even though they grow, there's not much yeah. coming up. Coming. Is there any reason, any way to sort of make sure that doesn't happen? Well, a lot of it comes down to watering and feeding and obviously the amount of daylight that the plants get. Um, obviously, for things that are things like chilies and peppers, for example, which obviously need to flower and obviously create these mm. sort of wonderful large fruits, really, and vegetable um, is you need to feed them at least once a week. And you want to feed them with a nice sort of good sort of mix, sort of natural sort of liquid feed. Something like tomato feed is absolutely perfect for it. Mm. It's got a lovely mix of potassium and nitrogen and phosphorus. And you need all those three. So the potassium will help with the produce and the flowers if you're growing flowers. The phosphorus will help with good root development. And the nitrogen will help with the good sort of leaf development, the green side of it all. Right. So if you feed it, because I think people often forget, you know, if they bung it either into a plant, a plant into their border or into a container, they're assuming that the soil is going to do everything that it should. 
but actually it doesn't. You know, that if you buy compost and you put something in a pot, that compost is only going to feed that plant for about two months, really. Mm. So you're going to have to top that up. It's a bit like feeding your kids. You know, your kids want food and water on a regular basis, and it's the same for plants. Okay. And what about compost? Are you a fan of people having compost heaps? Because I never quite know now whether it's, uh, you know, considered to be a good thing to do this or that, which we all used to oh, do. Oh, no. You know, what, my, what's, my, what's the story? It, it's a really good thing to do. It really, really is. But, you know, if you haven't got the space for a huge compost bay, you know, you can buy these lovely sort of self-contained ones, which are sort of look like mm. a plastic sort of upside down bin. They're absolutely ideal as well. You want to have a really good mix of sort of the browns, which is things like paper, sort of leaves, all that sort of thing. And then greens, which is sort of like anything from the, the kitchen, like yeah. lettuces, old tomatoes, the cuttings from your garden. Mix it all up. As long as you, uh, you sort of keep it moist and in a nice sunny position, then you're going to create this incredible substance, which you can grow anything in. Also, if you don't have the space, then especially come the autumn time, if you collect deciduous leaves when they're sort of fallen off the tree, put them into a black plastic bin bag, add some water, then tie up the bag, make some holes in the bag for some air, put it somewhere sort of dark in a corner somewhere, forget about it for a year, it will turn into what's called leaf mold. Mm. And that is the most beautiful crumbly mixture that you can use for sowing seeds, adding into compost to loosen up the compost. So I'm a great fan, but obviously do not put things like meat or cheeses or anything mm. like that, which of course will attract things like rats and yeah. mice to right. it. And don't put it in a cupboard under the stairs, presumably either. No, definitely not. No. <laughs> what about an allotment? I've got a couple of friends, it could be possibly my age now, that I've got a couple of friends who've actually recently decided they've quite fancied having an allotment and have now got an allotment and, and love it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, they're lucky because I know a lot of, a lot of allotments now and there's four-year waiting lists right. for a lot of them. Um, but I think that, again, it shows that people are getting really interested in the provenance of where their food is coming from. And if they can grow it themselves, then obviously they can grow it organically or if they want to use herbicides and pesticides, they can. I always urge people to grow organically. It, you know, you'll get healthier, tastier food mm. from that. Um, and I think, you know, as you said earlier, it's about getting the kids involved as well. But gardening can be for any age. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it. Is it yes. doesn't matter what age, what level of ability you've got. You can go out there, you can do something, you can enjoy it. And that's where allotments are brilliant because it also has that lovely community yeah. feel about it as well. Well, it's quite sort of fulfilling, isn't it, to be able to grow something? Yeah, absolutely. Really, really is. Good. Well, listen, great to talk to you, Mark. It's nice to talk about something other than bleeding COVID and lockdowns and all the rest of it. So I thought we should get you on uh, to give everybody some ideas to uh, uh, to use up over the weekend as they peruse more travel documents to work out where they can't go. Uh, Mark Lane there, gardening expert, writer and broadcaster for Gardener's World. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, go and talk to Dr. Simon Clark, an eminently sensible individual who always um, cheers me up whenever I speak to him. So I'm hoping he's going to do it again today. So Simon, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. So, um, I'm sort of betwixt and between today, whether the, I'm more annoyed about the way that schools are currently being run, uh, or I'm more annoyed about the way the NHS is being run, really, because um, we've still got loads of people who can't see a doctor, we've still got loads of people who can't get procedures done in hospitals. Meanwhile, we're being told that, you know, the vaccine rollout's going brilliantly well. Boris Johnson couldn't stop saying it yesterday in Prime Minister's questions, despite being asked all sorts of other questions. And now we're told we're going to have boosters to come in in the autumn i mean you know it's all very well but we still 
are not free, as it were. Um, no, we're not. And I don't think we are going to be for some time. I'm, I'm sorry I can't cheer you up with that. <laughs> um, you, using your metric of having no restrictions on our lives as being a, a measure for that, yeah. which I can, can sympathise with. Mm. Um, but uh, I do think that going forward, even come uh, July the 19th, which I think will happen, um, there will be something um, that we're, we're given, something that we're told we've got to do that was different from two years ago. Um, and that's what we're going to be lumbered with for, I think, quite some time. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly uh, um, under the impression that the travel restrictions are going to be in place for a long time. Because yeah. unfortunately, thanks to our rather bizarre form of testing and, and reporting the data, um, everyone in Europe seems to think we're sicker than they are. Um, yeah. Um, we're not, though. No, we're not. But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, for politicians, that sort of thing is quite convenient. To, to, to point to be able to point to somebody else, which is largely what Angela Merkel is trying to do in uh, trying to persuade uh, other European countries not to allow us in for holidays. It's so that we don't mix with uh, with Germans and uh, and stop them having their holidays. That's that's uh, that's what she's doing. Well, she says that, but she's basing that on the number of um, test uh, results that we're getting, which are positive. Um, yeah. which, as everybody now knows, may or may not be an, an indicator of terrible ill health. Because I was told the other day by, by a virologist, who said, look, if you've got a large number of positive tests and yet you've got a smaller number of deaths and a smaller number of hospital admissions, that's probably a good thing. Oh, it is a good thing, absolutely. Uh, but that's because we've uh, rolled the vaccine out to... Uh to uh, quote Boris Johnson from yesterday, but um, other countries haven't done it quite so well. So uh, they, yes. they want to... Uh, but but, with all, of, but with all of that, that praise for the rollout, surely there has to come part two of that conversation, which is that because we've done that so well, now we can do this. But it's the now we can do this bit that's not happening. No, it's it's not. Not yet, anyway. Um, and, and as for travel, uh, other, other people will try and... Uh, keep us away from their population while uh, they think we've got a high number of uh, of uh, infections. Yeah. And again, I mean, I'm watching as we're speaking, Boris Johnson up at, I presume, the Nissan car plant up in Sunderland, where we've just announced a very good deal for a lot of jobs to be created and a new electric car to be made. He's standing inside the factory, it looks like to me, uh, without a mask on. Now, um, there seems to be a bit of a confusing narrative going on here. Wimbledon, somebody said to me last night, what happens when they shut the roof at Wimbledon? Does that become an indoor venue? And if so, why are people not having to wear masks? I hadn't thought of that, but you're quite right. It's a good one, uh, isn't I, it? I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I will take that one. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly it's not an issue in Wimbledon because they didn't put them on, um, even yeah. though bizarrely some people are wearing them and some people are not. You know, so we're in this place where uh, we're being told by the government July 19th we're probably going to take the masks off. We've got schools who are sending hundreds of thousands of children home who have got nothing wrong with them because they're worried that they might get something wrong with them or they might get something wrong with them within the next 10 days. And it's all just sort of all over the place, isn't it? It is a bit all over the place. The schools thing is is silly. They, what they really need to do is to be able to test them on mass every day, uh, but they don't have the wherewithal to do that. Uh, let's hope that there's no excuse for them not having that uh, come. Uh, but but the, the leader of the, the, of, the, of the vaccine program from Oxford University said last week to the Telegraph that they, there's no point in testing kids anymore. They just well, shouldn't that's bother. Just, that's just his opinion. Well, um, well he knows a bit about he, know, he knows a bit about it, doesn't he? 
he does, but so do other people who take a different point of view. I mean, Andrew Pollard is not um, the be-all and end-all. He is not the oracle of uh, of uh, everything to do with COVID. He has developed a useful, successful vaccine. Uh, he's not an epidemiologist. Right. So you don't agree with him? Uh, not really, no. So you think we one. should continue to test people who haven't got any symptoms? Uh, if you're looking at stopping it spreading through schools, then uh, that's a... Uh, 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 an alternative to what we've got. Well, at that's the what moment. they have been doing, though. And they, in addition to them doing that, it's still been spreading in schools. So, you know, uh, not not all schools. I mean, I'm talking all pupils every day. Uh, I think that's what we'll be moving to in September. But I think that's ludicrous because, as a parent, I I do not want my child tested every single day. I think that's a real invasion of his of his personal space. Apart from anything else. Uh, well, that's uh, an ethical question for the government to. Uh, to address when they come up with whatever policy it is they come up with. Yeah, but the fact is, surely the time has come, as you and I have been talking for many, many months now, Simon, to weigh up the pros and cons of various different things, including how we wish our children to be educated, including how we wish to treat a disease which doesn't kill most of the people that it infects, and whether we have some kind of balance about our lives. Yeah, absolutely it is. But it's for the government to square that and to come up with an answer. Uh, there is still a lot of virus coursing round in society, an increasing amount, uh, and there are still millions of people who are susceptible to it. Well, there's an increasing so... amount of positive tests, is what we know. There's not an increasing amount of hospital admissions to any large extent, and there's not a massively increasing amount of deaths. I mean, let's look at the death figures on the Telegraph this morning. 26,068 daily coronavirus cases, deaths 14. You know, yeah, but um, the, I know you're going to say, "Now we're going to tell me now well, we have to wait a couple of weeks," which is what they always we say. do. We do. You, you simply have to wait a couple of weeks. Well, what about two weeks ago? It was the same. No, it wasn't. The numbers hadn't shot no, up. No, the death numbers. No, have. the death numbers were the same two weeks ago, but the number of cases has increased partly because they're surge testing in a lot of areas, partly because yeah. people have been moving around more. But my point is, is that if people are getting the disease, as you said earlier, and not yeah. dying from it. That's that's good news. That is good news. We need to make sure that, that that carries on being the case. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Well, it's been the case for quite a long time. We've had the Indian variant now since April. Well, we have, but it hasn't really shot up in numbers since mid-June. No, that's because... We're only we've... talking about two or three weeks. Yeah, but I mean, the point is that's because of the fact that many more people have been doing many more things. And so it would make sense, would it not, to conclude, therefore, that the more people move around, the more likely there is that it will spread. Now, you can either take the view that we should not move around at all for the rest of time, uh, or you take the view that, well, if we move around, we should expect it. And as long as it's not killing loads of people, then let's carry on. You can take that point of view, but the government clearly isn't. Um, you know, they are taking the view that they want to keep this under control. Um, and, and that's just where we are. Well, then you have to and define, well, you have to define under control, then, don't you? What is, what well, is under do. control? We don't know. They don't tell us anything about that's that. The they problem. don't tell us what any of the, uh, the, the parameters that they, uh, they use. I mean, I, I, would have thought that, I would have thought that less than 20 deaths a day for a considerable period of time, which is what it's been, is under control. Um, you could take that point of view. Uh, they obviously don't. They're looking at the numbers of infections, the numbers of Yes, diagnoses. I know they are. But the point is there were 1,351 deaths yesterday, right? 14 of them from COVID. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of other things that could be worried about. Yes. 
but they're not. I, I can't deny that. No, I can't deny that. A lot of those would have been cancer and heart disease. People exactly. who haven't had uh, who haven't had proper treatment. Yes, and that to me is a much more worrying situation than what we're currently seeing um, in in the COVID statistics. It is to me as well, and I think you can make the argument that therefore you need to make sure people are kept out of hospital. Well, yeah, I think that's the one place where you can get it. I mean, I've got a friend in Scotland um, who got it from his wife who went to hospital for a different procedure and came out with COVID. Yeah, my grandmother got it as well before she died. Right. Did she die of it or with it? Uh, No, she'd recovered from it by the time she died. But the point is, she could have done. Yes, no, indeed. (coughs) But would would she have been counted as a COVID death, though? No, she wasn't. It's not on her death certificate. Right. Okay. So, I mean, we are sort of in the same place in a way, but we shouldn't be. Because this time last year, my family were able to book a holiday to Portugal. So was I, right. Portugal. Now yep. that people have been vaccinated, they can't do it. I know, it's daft. That doesn't it's make any sense. I'm it? not going to say it and defend it to you. No, it is daft. I know, I'm not. Stupid. No, listen, Simon, this is why I like talking to you, because you're not, so you don't trot out the government line. You're as baffled by it as I am. But I'm, what I'm trying I am to completely do, baffled and what I'm it. trying to do is get to a point where I can say, that we can continue to pressurise the, the government because we've now got a new health secretary who I'm hoping mm. is a little bit more business-oriented uh, than the last one was. Um, and perhaps he will know, and he has certainly indicated from what he said, that he wants to lift restrictions in July, on July the 19th. And I just think like, it's a different attitude they need to have. Yeah, uh, they've got to start opening up to us about what what it is, what metrics they use to make their decisions, and that that you know that is really hard. That's a really hard place for me because I speak to people like you and other journalists, and I simply don't know. Not because I've been lazy and haven't bothered to find out. It's because they don't tell us mm. where we've got to be in order to move things on, in order for restrictions to be lifted, in order for uh, you know uh, uh, travel lists to be adjusted, stuff like that. Uh, they really do need to be, and hopefully Sajid Javid will be, a lot more open mm. about these things. Yes, because one of the things they've never told us, really, is when we do hear the figures of people who have died, with the 14, for example, I would imagine that most of those, if not all of them, would be older. Most of them, if not all of them, would have had underlying health conditions because that's what we know is the most likely reason for somebody to die from COVID. Um, but they never really share that with us either. No. No, they've never shared that with us either. You're no. absolutely right. But why not? Um, I, 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 my personal opinion is because they don't want people like me and you picking over it. Right. But we'll do that anyway. But we do. And, and because yeah. they don't tell us, it makes people feel suspicious that they're keeping something from us for a reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's never healthy, is it? No, it's never healthy. You know, we don't, we're, not, we're not China. We should be able to ask these questions and get an answer. Yeah. Okay. It might take a little bit of time for them to anonymize stuff like that. We have to recognize the information. I mean, I wouldn't think it's that hard to collect the data on 14 people, would you? No, of course not. I mean, if it's 14,000, that would be something, but it's 14. They have have the answers. They have the answers sat somewhere. They're just not telling us. Exactly right. And what about other countries in Europe? Because, I mean, they don't seem to be behaving any better really which is what really depresses me the most because i'd like to be able to say well i mean certainly in america parts of america are doing very well you know they're not having any problems they're not having to 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 run and hide under a duvet every five minutes and they're dealing with their their variants as 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 they as they come along but what they're not doing is uh, making people wear masks everywhere what they're not doing is stopping people from going about their, their daily business that's true. Um, I, I don't quite understand why people are quite so spooked mm. about this, the, the Delta variant. 
um, compared to any others. I think it's the transmissibility and a recognition in other countries that they simply haven't got the vaccine as uh, uh, well spread out, as well administered as, as, as has happened here and in the US and in Israel. Yeah. But that's that's the other baffling thing, because we have got a better situation than most other countries. And yet we've sort of somehow allowed ourselves to fall behind them in the way that they're traveling about and moving around. Uh, Yeah. Um, And again, we don't know why, because we don't get told this is why we have to to do X, Y or Z. This is why uh, we're taking this uh, the, the measures that we are. Other than, of course, the most basic, vague uh, allusions yeah. to that. And so what do you make of this booster idea then? Um, well, I think what it means is that the authorities are concerned that the immunity from the vaccine will start to wane in the older population because uh, it will only be in people over 50. Um, and therefore, they're going to give them a shot of the same vaccine, as I understand it. So it's not even one that's uh, sort of tinkered to... To, to, to the Delta variant or anything else that might come along and basically try and boost your antibodies and your T-cells. Um, that's what it's all about. They don't know that the immunity that people have from the vaccines earlier this year is going to last into later this year, early next year. So they're going to keep the restrictions in place until the immunity is worn off, so we need to get some more. Brilliant. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it, actually. Well, what was the, so what was like the that. point then, you know? And I think a lot of yeah. people will go, do you know what? You can shove it. We're not doing it. Because the last time we did it, it didn't change anything. Uh, they, they may well do that. That may well be a problem. Yeah, we'll I think see. it may well be. Well, Dr. Simon Clark, for once you have not cheered me up. So uh, thank you anyway um, for your conversation. Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology, Cellular Microbiology at Reading University. This is the point, right? What was the point of getting a vaccine if nothing changed in your life? What was the point of you taking two vaccines if nothing changed in your life? And if they're now going to say, I'll tell you what, we'll keep you locked down until it's worn off and then we'll give you another one. God's sake. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.